we hear sometimes, oh, we're going to do this because we're saving the planet. We don't need to save the planet. The planet's going to always be here. But what we're really talking about at the core of it is we're taking these steps to be more environmentally sustainable so we can actually save humanity. Welcome to the fourth episode of Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hilary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And in this series, we bring our unique and curious perspectives to host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. A corporate sustainability changemaker for over two decades, Michael Cavori, first at Levi Strauss & Company, and now as Chief Sustainability Officer of Starbucks, has been at the forefront of a movement that has evolved from a more narrow focus on corporate social responsibility to a broader conception of stakeholder capitalism. So in this episode, we chat with Michael about how the entrepreneurship he exercised at Levi's progressed and broadened its concept of sustainability. We also discuss the carbon footprint of coffee, how to discern greenwashers from true climate leaders, the role of business in combating systemic racism, and how lessons from the Boy Scouts informed Starbucks' recent commitment to become resource positive. So with that, here is Michael Kabori, Chief Sustainability Officer of Starbucks, sitting down with me, Chad Reed. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us here at Climate Positive. My pleasure, Chad. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Michael, you grew up in San Jose, I believe, as a third-generation Japanese-American, and you started your career at the Asia Foundation, where you spent nine years working to promote sustainable development and the rule of law in a few countries, Bangladesh, Thailand, Vietnam, I think. What led you to this organization and, and focus as you started your career? You know, when I went to undergrad, I went to Berkeley and I majored in uh, two things. It's double major, Asian studies and psychology. And back in those days, the big thing was called international business. Okay, <laughs> now all business <laughs> is, is global, but I was really interested in getting into international business. And so my first job was actually as something called a customs broker out in Chicago, um, where you help bring imported goods into the U.S., but it ended up being the clerk's job of just filling out, you know, customs forms. So I left that job after about a year. And I had been very involved when I was younger in youth exchange programs. I spent a summer in high school over in Japan, living with a host family. I continued to stay involved in that organization. And uh, those contacts and relationships eventually led me to the Asia Foundation. And at first, a role in their Asian American Exchange Department which seemed to be very interesting work for me. And then later on, they sent me to some of their Asia-based offices where I got very involved in their programs on the ground there in Asia around, as you mentioned, human rights and economic development and regional cooperation. Mm -hmm. You did have a brief stint subsequently with the uh, Business for Social Responsibility, one of the first NGOs that was focused on stakeholder capitalism. Before you made your way back to Levi Strauss, where you had, I think, been previously for a few years. So what drove you to focus on corporate sustainability, especially in that point in time when very few companies, you know, if they considered sustainability at all, they may have considered a, a bad word or an, a best and unfamiliar word. So how did you get involved in corporate sustainability in the late 90s, early 2000s? After the Asia Foundation, I went back to graduate school and I studied public policy again at Berkeley. And I was fully expecting to just go right back into the foundation 
or into the foundation world. So as I was getting ready to graduate from my master's program at Berkeley, I saw on the job board that it was literally a job board, like a bulletin board there on <laughs> campus. You know, we had those back then. Um, there was a job announcement for a public policy role at Levi Strauss and Company in government affairs. And so I knew Levi's was a good company, didn't really know why at that time, and decided to apply. And I ended up getting that job. And uh, it was in the mid-90s at a time when the apparel sector was, if you'll recall, uh, back then dealing with a lot of issues around labor standards and human rights in their factories. And there was a lot of questions around child labor and forced labor and proper working hours and so forth. And there really wasn't anyone in the company who was supposed to deal with it or in the private sector who knew how to deal with that. And the people in the company said, oh, well, Michael, you worked in Asia, which is one of the places we're having these issues, and you worked on human rights, so why don't you start helping us on this? And so they pulled me into that work, and that's how I got involved with it. And after a few years at Levi's, I decided, oh, we had been doing a lot of work with BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, it was called at the time. And I said, well, they're trying to do it with more companies. And so that's how I ended up at, at BSR. When you made your way back to Levi's, you, you started in human rights and, and the supply chain. How did your role evolve as Levi's made its way along its sustainability journey? Because you were there for a couple of decades, right? I was at uh, Levi's for 22 years in total. And at first, my job was very focused on labor standards. And that that's what it was. I, I was the director of what we called code of conduct at that time. So it was 100% focused on labor standards in factories where we made the product. And that was 10 years doing that, focusing on that, working with other partners in the industry to build that program. And then after about 10 years, Levi Strauss Company used to operate and own a lot of its own factories throughout the United States. Really, there were literally 40 factories in the U.S., that the company owned at the time I joined. They were in the southwest and the southeastern part of the country. And um, over the years, of course, all those factories ended up being closed because the production moved offshore. But as they closed, there was still an infrastructure of people who worked on environmental issues because every factory in the U.S. had to meet U.S. EPA standards as well as OSHA health and safety standards. And so by the time... After 10 years happened, those, those factories closed down. We still had that team in place, and they really didn't have that much work left in the U.S., and so we didn't know what to do with that team. And I raised my hand because I said, well, actually, we have a lot of these issues in the supply chain around the world. So then one thing led to another, and then that team joined my team, and we became an integrated sustainability team at that point. Wow, so you really drove the conversation within Levi's to utilize resources, uh, human resources that had been underutilized because of offshoring to help create a more sustainable supply chain overall and over the long term. That's pretty much what happened. And But you very recently, within the last year, I think, made your way to Starbucks and where you're now the chief sustainability officer. And you've committed at Starbucks to become resource positive which is a great term, slightly different than the climate positive term that we like to use on this podcast. But what did you mean by that term and, and why did you make that commitment? 
Well, it is essentially the same meaning as uh, climate positive as you talk about. Resource positive for us at, at Starbucks means that our aspiration is to give more than we take or more than we consume of the planet's resources. You know, when I was growing up, I was in the Boy Scouts and did a lot of camping and hiking out in the Sierras. And one of the philosophies when you go camping and hiking with Boy Scouts is that you leave your campsite better than you found it. And that is how I like to think about it, where as a company, we're trying to leave the world a better place than we found it. Yeah, that's, that's a great aspiration. But at Starbucks, you're primarily focused on coffee, right? I mean, that's, that's what you all do best, beverages more broadly, I'm sure. Can you tell us a little bit about the carbon footprint of coffee? You know, where are the emissions coming from along the supply chain? And how are you all now working to reduce those emissions? Well, at Starbucks, uh, we are still all about coffee. That's how we were founded. But, you know, our business is growing, is expanding. And uh, in addition to coffee, we've branched out into a lot of other different kinds of beverages as well as food. So now we have a substantial food business. And as we have done our footprinting around our carbon impact, around our water impact, around our waste footprint, we learned some really interesting things. And we've learned that in carbon, for example, the biggest chunk of our carbon footprint, 22%, actually comes from dairy, hmm. cows. Of course, makes sense, right? If you think about the, the products that we offer at Starbucks, almost all of the espresso-based drinks cappuccinos, lattes, there's a significant component of dairy in those. There's a lot of milk that we use. And so when we did the analysis, the footprinting, we realized, yep, the dairy, the impact of, of course, cows and the methane emissions coming from cows, 22% of our total footprint. Coffee itself is about 15% of the footprint, and then the rest of it breaks down. But those are the two biggest uh, emissions factors for carbon for us. Got it. So 15% is like farming the beans themselves. Is that right? Or, Correct. Yeah. Well, so now you've started to offer more climate-friendly options, and especially non-dairy options. My, my partner is actually uh, lactose intolerant and so drinks a lot of oat milk. And he's really enjoyed that you've uh, provided that option to him in your stores now. Uh, what other climate-friendly plant-based menu options are you all implementing? And and are you seeing a lot of uptake from customers? Is this, you know, more demand pool or is it more supply push? It's a little bit of both, Chad. We've already been using at least five different kinds of dairy alternatives for our beverages and offered those to customers because there has been that demand for it. And now what we're seeing is really an upsurge in the demand not only because of the popularity of products like oat milk that are coming from Oatly, which is our, our key partner in this area, but also people are realizing that the plant-based products have a lower carbon footprint. And so that is just adding to the momentum that we have with plant-based alternatives. Well, staying on the topic of consumer engagement, uh, I know that you also recently launched a new Borrow a Cup program. And your yeah. goal is obviously to reduce landfill waste, I think, by 50% by 2030. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how this program works and what was the impetus behind it. Absolutely. 
Well, we certainly know that, uh, you know, Starbucks contributes to this issue around waste. We've had the disposable cup for many years. Uh, it's kind of like our brand icon now. And we realize that this is a contributor to waste. And so we need to do something about it. So we need to move to a more circular economy and to use more reusable cups. And so our goal over time is to replace the disposable cup with reusable cups. Through our programs, there's really three ways to get at that. The first is what we call for here where. So if you go into a Starbucks and you order a beverage to consume in the cafe, then it used to be the default that you would get that beverage in a ceramic mug that you would just use in the store. So that's very sustainable. So we're trying to get back to that. So that's the first use case, if you will. The second use case is um, what we call personal cups. And so that is a customer bringing in their own cup and then they get it filled, you get 10% discount off of that. We've had to suspend that program during COVID for health concerns, but we're ready to start bringing that back. We've already brought it back in Europe and a number of other markets. And so it's just a matter of time before we bring back the personal cup program to the U.S. And then the last use case that you've mentioned is when a customer wants the beverage to go, can we provide it not in a paper cup, but in a reusable cup? And so we've just been experimenting now over the past year with a couple of different programs. And right now in Seattle, we are testing in five stores a program where we have this reusable cup. So you get your beverage in the reusable cup. There's $1 deposit. And then when you're done drinking this, we have a kiosk set up in our stores where you can put this in the kiosk and you scan it in your phone and then you get your dollar deposit back. And then the cup gets washed, sterilized, and then reused. That's a great program. I actually haven't taken advantage of that yet myself, but definitely will the next time I stop in. I also read you're partnering with a few folks, Closed Loop Partners, maybe the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and others. Can you tell us a bit about the importance of partnerships as corporations work to achieve their rather ambitious sustainability goals? Chad, I think you know from working with me that I enjoy this work. I do it because whether I'm with it, you know, Levi Strauss Company or Starbucks, I believe in the power to change our company and what we can do in the world. But ultimately, I want to change the system. And so in order to get to that ambition, we do need to partner with others in our sector, whether it's apparel or food and beverage, as well as leading nonprofit organizations, environmental organizations, to come up with those innovative solutions that can be scaled in the given sector or overall in uh, all companies. So that's what we're really trying to get to is that systems change. Right. Yeah. And it is important to gauge both non-governmental organizations and other companies as we achieve these very ambitious systemic goals. I guess as you think about your partners, I know you joined the Transform to Net Zero initiative. You're one of the founding members there. Could you tell us a little bit about your progress along your net zero journey? Well, as I mentioned at Starbucks, you know, we started out with a number of innovations, whether that's the 
coffee and farmer equity program, which we call our CAFE standards, which is how we partnered with Conservation International to develop a more sustainable way to produce and procure coffee. So that program has been around for 20 years. And today, 99% of all the coffee we purchase and use is through CAFE practices. It's certified through that program. We've had LEED certified stores for almost as long, about 20 years. And we have that program, which we're now actually going even further than LEED. As you know, LEED is a building standard. And one of the things that we've also wanted to focus on is how the building is operated, right? How we operate the stores. And so we've developed with World Wildlife Fund a program we call the Greener Stores Program that incorporates a lot of those, well, building standards, a number of other standards, and looks also at the way we operate the building. So the recycling kind of programs that we have for our products and so forth. So we've built all this into a Greener Stores Framework. Those are some of the things that we've been doing along our journey. And then, of course, beginning of last year, we set out, our CEO set out that vision to become planet positive and to reduce by 2030 our carbon emissions by 50%, so to cut them in half over the next 10 years. And then last year, we also joined, as you mentioned, become founding member of the Transform to Net Zero initiative. And so as part of that initiative, we're committed to getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So that's been the the journey. We just keep raising our aspiration because that's what's necessary. You know, earlier this year, our target of 50% reduction by 2030 was just approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. So we're now SBTI verified, and that's to the 1.5 degree target. That's that's really great. I think one of the frustrations we have at our company is that some companies use these net zero commitments and other announcements as a form of greenwashing. They make it look like they're good corporate citizens, but there's not much in the way of, of substance there or any changes to their current operations. And definitely see that's not the case with Starbucks. So how do you think we companies like ours and, and consumers, perhaps more importantly, can really discern the wheat from the chaff here or the, the real climate leaders from the greenwashers or, or pretenders in this respect? I would say there's a couple of things that I'm just taking off my Starbucks hat for a moment as just an informed person on, on the environment and on sustainability. I would say I always look for companies that have a verified science-based target. Um, so if you have one of those, it tells me that you've done your homework, you have you have a plan in place to get there, and it is a pretty rigorous program and commitment. So that's the first thing I would look at. The second thing I would look at is to see if the company has any plans, if they've declared a net zero target, what are their plans? What do they think they can do to achieve that? And are they going to achieve that through reductions or through shifts in the way they're doing business, like, for example, moving from animal-based to plant-based proteins in their menu or addressing their dairy emissions, things like that? Do they have those kinds of actions in place or are they not very specific and are they simply going to rely on you know, carbon offsets to get their way there? So those are some of the things that I would look at. Yeah, and that's a good point on the carbon offset market. We, we've done a bit of research in that ourselves, and 
it's very, very difficult to verify, you know, long-term sequestered or, or removed carbon. And that I think maybe moves us to our next line of questioning around policy. You know, with the new administration, there are many companies, you know, focused on the intersection of policy and sustainability or ESG. And the SEC has this request for comments regarding ESG disclosures. And with all the interest among investors and NGOs on reporting, lobbying activities as well. So how does Starbucks work to incorporate its values and its sustainability focus into its policy engagement and advocacy efforts? It is very important for our efforts around policy advocacy to be very aligned with our positions. And so Starbucks was one of the founding members of the uh, BICEP, the Business for Innovative Climate and Energy Policy Coalition that does work with federal government and uh, Congress to try and create more sustainably focused standards around carbon energy. So very important for us to do that. As a member of the Transform to Net Zero initiative, we recently signed on to that letter calling for the administration to take steps to reduce the U.S. carbon emissions by 50%. So we've tried to be very consistent in terms of our policy advocacy with the goals and targets that we have as a company. Yeah, that's very encouraging. As we know, that there are some companies that will donate to certain candidates um, who, who are not aligned with their values, but uh, it's, it's encouraging to see you all are moving in a different direction. And then I guess on the slightly broader topic of the intersection of social justice and climate action, and, and some folks refer to this as climate justice, I know you've participated in some recent discussions on this issue. Where are you and Starbucks focusing your efforts on this front? Starbucks is very focused around becoming planet positive or giving more than we take from the planet's uh, resources. We also have a goal to become more people positive. And so that pertains to not only our employees, who we call partners, but farmers as well, um, who grow our coffee. And it is that intersection of people and planet that, to me, is what sustainability is all about. We talk about or we hear sometimes, oh, we're going to do this because we're saving the planet. We don't need to save the planet. The planet's going to always be here. But what we're really talking about at the core of it is we're taking these steps to be more environmentally sustainable so we can actually save humanity and the conditions that human beings can thrive on this planet. And so that's what we're trying to protect. And so that intersection of people and planet is really important to Starbucks. It's very important to me as well. And so we've been exploring a number of programs. Uh, we just announced recently a program where through our renewable energy investments in the United States, in New York State in particular, we have a new program where through those investments, we're not only going to be able to provide renewable energy to our stores, but also to enterprises, organizations in the surrounding communities, particularly BIPOC communities where BIPOC folks are getting unduly impacted by the negative impacts of the climate crisis. So bringing the people and planet threads together, exploring and supporting that intersectionality is, is really important to us. Yeah, I saw that, that recent announcement. That seems like a really great program. And I guess then 
kind of on that topic, very sadly, as you know, there's been an alarming rise in hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans over the last year in specific cities in particular across the U.S. Do you think there's a role for the business community in combating this particular epidemic or systemic racism more broadly? Absolutely. And I think that what we have seen over the past year with Black Lives Matter, with uh, focus on racial justice in this country, businesses have stepped up. And I think through COVID, through the Black Lives Matter protests last summer, through the climate crisis, through voting rights, through lots of issues that our society is going through, we are seeing companies step up and take a stand and and not only express where they stand as companies, but also speak out in support of people's rights and, and these issues. And so what we've seen, certainly what I've seen over the past 25 years in working in what was originally called corporate social responsibility and has evolved to, um, now we're talking about what stakeholder capitalism is, I think, the phrase that you used. We're seeing a shift in the role that businesses are expected to take in our society. And it goes way beyond what Milton Friedman used to talk about, the business of businesses. Business is only and only thinking about profits to now a much bigger conception of the role of business in supporting people and planet. And the recognition that if you pay attention to people and planet, that is also going to drive your long-term profitability. Yeah, and I think that's really key as well. I think so many businesses are now realizing that they are more profitable, especially over the long-term, if they do have aggressive climate goals, if they do participate in the social well-being of the communities in which they operate. So I think that's been a very positive development over the last uh, few years. Well, Michael, I think now we're going to move to our hot seat questions a fun way for us to end our interviews. So we'll first start with fill in the blank questions. The most important lesson I learned in 2020 was? Incremental change is not acceptable and we need to think in terms of transformational change. The most insightful book or article I read last month was? Uh, the most insightful book I read last month was All We Can Save. Yes, I also enjoyed All We Can Save, which is a collection of essays and poetry edited, I believe, by Diana Elizabeth Johnson and, and Catherine Wilkinson that highlights a wide range of uh, women's voices in the environmental movement. If you really knew me, you would know. If you really knew me, you would know that Deep down, I am an activist who wants to change the system. Excellent. I know that from the buttons on your jacket right now. <laughs> <laughs> the sustainability phrase or acronym we should ban from our lexicon is... Is CSR. Definitely dated at this point. Okay. Slim fit, skinny, straight, boot cut, loose fitting. What style of jeans do you like best? I'm an old school 501 guy. Excellent. 501 is called the anti-fit. <laughs> All right. 
Now, overrated or underrated? The Utopia Theater Project. The Utopia Theater Project is underrated and is the best kept secret in theater. Utopia was working on gun violence, Me Too, and mental health awareness before any of those issues hit the mainstream. And Utopia is based in the Bay Area? or Based in the Bay Area. We'll have to catch some shows now that the, but hopefully theater's reopening. <laughs> yes. Seattle. Seattle is very underrated. I live in Berkeley and I love the Bay Area. I grew up here. But uh, Seattle is uh, cleaner, less congested, and less polluted. It's very nice. And then finally, Michael, to me, climate positive means... To me, climate positive means we will ensure that those who are most affected by the climate crisis get their needs addressed. That's a great sentiment to end on. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today. It's been a really fun conversation. Thank you, Chad. I enjoyed speaking with you. Climate Positive is produced by Hannah Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannah Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannahnarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.